The Siege of New Hampshire series by McRowland. Book Three, Hunger Season. Chapter 12, Malcolm's Road. Hey, Steve, Martin called out. You're just in time. We could use another pair of hands. You brought the laptop, Dustin said. Does that mean you found something in those lines of code? Uh, let's get Tin Man up on the buckboard first, okay? Martin said with a stern glare. He was curious, too. That's why he gave Steve the lineman's hard drive in the first place. He hoped that Steve's forensic software skills might provide some insight into the grid failure. At the moment, however, Tin Man and the generator needed to be loaded for a trip to Walter's. The three of them muscled the gasifier and the generator onto the buggy's bed. Okay, it's all loaded. Now, what did you find? Dustin rubbed his hands together like a kid at Christmas. If you boys are going to talk software, I'm going to go chat with Margaret for a sec said Jen. Come and get me when you're ready. It's too cold out here to stand around. Steve set the laptop on the buckboard. There isn't a lot of battery left, so I'll give you a description first, before show and tell. Yes, I was able to break down the code and study it. First off, it wasn't just those PIF files. There were bits of replicating code hidden all over, in the printer drivers, font files, even JPEGs of company logos. Okay, but to do what? Martin asked. The little bits were like ants. None of them by themselves were anything malicious looking. Together, they worked like a colony of ants. They probed anything and everything on the network. I watched them assemble a temporary probe app, run it on my printer, and then delete the probe. It was looking for any one of several commands, but it didn't find any. Like executables? Dustin guessed. Scripts? Sort of. But more specifically, their sniffers look for telltale commands that programmable controllers use. The colony would send those back to, well, somewhere. What came back to the colony were slight tweaks to what the sniffers found. There was a little database of them on this guy's hard drive. Where a status bit had been a zero, meaning like an open switch, it changed it to a one, a closed switch. Steve flipped open the laptop. Here, I'll show you. See that string there? The original line had a zero right here. Now it's a one. The colony would replace old code with a new one. If it had been a closed valve, the colony opened it. If it was a thermostat, they told it to report normal, etc. Dustin mused aloud. Uh, is, is this like Stuxnet? Yes, but on steroids, said Steve. This bug looked for peripheral automation. The host computers, they weren't the target, only a vector. We heard about relays that failed, added Martin, or temperature switches or, or valves. Right, they made the automation break the physical components of the grid. But who are they? Dustin asked. Uh, could you tell? Can't look it up now. Steve shrugged his shoulders. From memory, and a job we did for the emir at the UAE, the IP is somewhere in the Middle East. But why would someone do this to the whole world? Dustin asked. It sounds like everybody got hit. 
some sort of anarchist terrorism thing mused martin ha high-tech luddites scoffed dustin why would they shoot holes in their own boat maybe it's more like monsters in those old movies that you always made us watch said dustin like frankenstein or invisible man or gog and magog or colossus the mad scientists create monsters that get out of control eventually killing the mad scientists that created them maybe those middle eastern dudes created a frankenstein bug and it took them down too maybe this might be why repairs to the grid keep failing said martin they replaced the broken parts but used the existing automation the ant colony is still in it and damages the repairs this could take a long time to clean up yeah and years to repair added dustin there can't be enough spare parts to go around and the factories that make them are all out of action too Hold your end up until I can get to the back of the buckboard, Martin said. Walter's houseguest, Malcolm, held his end of Tin Man as high as he could while backing away. Okay, hold hold it there a sec. Martin hopped down, getting a new grip on Tin Man's side straps. Bring that thing around the side of the house here, Walter said. We can set it up between the barn and the house. Newshawk and I'll bring the generator. I'll carry the buckets of wood chips, I guess, Sally said, to no one in particular. Setting up Tin Man and his generator at off-site locations was almost becoming a routine. It certainly wasn't designed to be a portable unit, but they were making it work. Martin poured in a bucket of chips. He had Judy spin the fan's flywheel. An electric motor, like Charles had for his truck's gasifier, was on the to-do list, but not yet urgent enough. The fire lit easily. Explaining to Malcolm and Walter how Tin Man worked bought some time for the smoke to ripen. Martin twisted the valves and pulled the starter cord. The generator sputtered to life. Yeah, let's have a bite to eat while the batteries charge up a bit first, Walter said. I drained them kind of low last time. Around Sally's dining room table sat the rest of her household. A rescued neighbor family of four, Walter, Sally, Malcolm, and a very withdrawn young woman. The single candle in the middle of the table gave minimal light. I hope you don't mind if we have Denty Moore again, she asked her household. We still have a lot of that to go through before we get into the nicer stuff. Everyone muttered their approval. Beef stew? Judy's eyes lit up. Oh, I don't mind one bit. All we ever have is rice or, or corn and special chicken. Judy shot a disapproving frown at Martin. Well then, eat up, dear. Sally poured a second ladle, almost overflowing her bowl. Judy happily sipped off the excess. Oh, where did you get food like this? Martin asked. You had enough extra to be trading it at the meeting, too. Sally looked at Walter, who looked at Malcolm, as if asking permission to speak. Yeah, Martin's okay, Walter said. He's been part of what's kept this town together. He's as good as anyone. Malcolm leaned forward, 
his face brighter in the candle's glow. The extras came with me in my truck. Everyone else at the table was more engaged in emptying their bowls than in Malcolm's tale. Martin did enjoy the salty, thick stew, but he was much too curious to concentrate on his food like everyone else was. Oh, but from where, if I might ask, said Martin. Malcolm looked at Walter skeptically. It's okay. He's one of the good ones, reassured Walter. He's the one I was telling you about. Malcolm gave a knowing nod. Ultimately, this stuff came from a FEMA stash down in Pennsylvania. I was on my way to a distribution center in Canton Lawrence, but um, detoured up here. I ran out of fuel on the hill out there. Walter took me in. Martin could tell that Malcolm intended his terse description to be all that needed to be said. It wasn't enough for Martin, however. He finished his meal quietly, letting Judy and Walter's ham radio banter dominate the table talk. Walter sat in front of his radio gear, rubbing his hands with glee. Oh, a whole hour of working the skips. Oh, that's worth another box of that stew. Sally set up a few chairs near the radio table. The neighbor family and the shy woman retired to the warmth of the living room fire. Uh, your guests don't talk much. Martin observed. No, not too much, no, said Sally softly, so as not to be overheard. The Donaldsons have had it pretty tough, trying to make a go of things. They finally had to give it up. I think they're still embarrassed. Kelsey just showed up on our door last week. Poor dear, must have been through a lot, too. Her name is the only word she's ever said, and that only once. Okay, Newshawk, are you ready to work some skips? Walter sounded like a variety show host trying to warm up an audience. Ready, Walter? Judy didn't need to be warmed up. Walter flipped some switches. A few dials glowed. He turned a big tuner dial, while Judy wore a pair of oversized headphones. She shook her head periodically, while Walter turned small increments. She held up a finger and then nodded. Walter flipped the speaker on for all to hear. Are confident that the criminal fleet will not be able to pass through undetected. Special cutters have been assigned stations along a picket line, extending over a hundred miles into the Atlantic. In a related story, Washington's program to deny contraband to the criminals is being met by a shipyard in Maryland. Former Navy cannons are being mounted on three cargo ships so they can fill out a second picket line that Senator Culp has ordered is making good on his promise that the enemies of the people shall not get past the forces of right. That's kind of depressing, said Walter. Let's see if we can find something happier. Judy resumed listening on the headphones. Walter resumed his slow twist of the knob. I sure hope that fleet can get through with supplies, said Martin. Sounds like a sizable fleet of ships. It won't. Malcolm said softly and flatly. What? Martin was taken aback by his quick dismissal of the aid fleet. Oh, why not? They ain't supposed to, Malcolm said out of the side of his mouth. Even Judy couldn't have heard him. It's a saber rattle, a really big, obvious saber. The real effort is, his voice sank into a whisper, Operation Longbow. 
Martin insisted on more, with an imploring look. The plan is to move supplies in overland. Less risk, more options. More ability to hide, said Malcolm. The fleet thing? That started out as a real plan. But coalition leaders decided the feds had too much defense. Totally risky. But they kept rattling that saber as loud and as often as they could to keep the attention away from Longbow. And how do you know all of this? Martin asked skeptically. I was one of the advanced scouts. Here's something, announced Judy. Authorities are certain that the explosions were the work of coalition saboteurs. Power plant engineers have checked every facet of the station before firing up the boilers. All of the previously damaged equipment had been replaced with parts salvaged from other power plants. Yet, after only six hours of operation, one of the boilers began to roar out of control and relief valves failed to open. The explosion damaged the adjacent boiler. Two men were hospitalized with burns. The deputy director of operations is confident that his equipment was sound. It had to be them cooler kooks. How they got in here, I don't know. They can't stand seeing progress, ruin everything they touch. But we vow to get another plant up and running as soon as possible to keep the government's noble plans moving forward. Yeah, that's depressing too. Walter flipped a couple more switches. Let's see what's on the two-meter band. That wasn't any coalition sabotage, muttered Malcolm. Oh, you sound pretty sure. Coalition doesn't need to sabotage their power plants. They learned a while back that there's something wrong with the control equipment. Lost a couple of power plants of our own learning that lesson. Yeah, no one knows what it is yet. Martin wondered if the ant colony virus Steve described was the culprit. Malcolm continued, Bottom line is, you can't reuse old control equipment. The feds ought to be learning that too. But it's easier to keep pointing to boogeymen behind every failure. Oh, I, I've got somebody, Walter. Turn it up. Judy pulled off the headphones. It's not a matter of who has the most efficient tractor, Earl. One tractor can't prep all of eastern Kansas. They need to depot fuel for a lot of tractors. Earl wasn't coming in clearly. Exactly. They're still far short producing that much. Farm Council has some optimistic goals. Martin's attention wandered from the ham radio banter that fascinated Judy and Walter. So, Malcolm, are you able to say a bit more about this longbow thing? I guess. Walter says you're cool. Can't talk about everything, of course. Well, of course. Uh, what about how you got here with a truck full of food? Malcolm wasn't too interested in the snippets of ham conversations, either. Uh, leadership wanted some boots on the ground to scope out possible routes for a convoy of relief aid to you guys here in New Hampshire. Really? Oh, that's amazing that people are willing to put in so much effort for us, Martin said. Well, not to burst your bubble, said Malcolm, but it isn't really about you guys. Sure, there's a humanitarian aid aspect, but the rest of it is that you guys are pawns. Leadership wants to deny the feds a victory. The longer you guys hold out, the weaker the feds look. Plus, 
keeping you guys alive and kicking in the belly of the beast keeps the beast busy. That's given the coalition time to get organized. Uh, for what? Dad ain't no tell me that level of stuff, said Malcolm. I'm only reading between the lines. Whether it's beefing up defenses on the borders or trying to woo away territories or something else, eh, hard to say. Bottom line is that keeping you guys alive is good for the coalition. Oh, well, I guess it's good to be useful. Martin was a little disappointed that pragmatism was stronger than altruism. So they wanted to get you guys enough food and supplies to keep you going until spring, at least. For that, they decided an overland route was best. The fleet idea came first, but it was looking too risky. The trouble with an overland route is traveling through a few hundred miles of hostile territory. They had a route working through upstate New York, but they needed more eyes on the next leg. Since I grew up in Philly, they tapped me to get into the shipping system. I volunteered to drive cube vans, distributing within Canton, Philly. It was rough work. I had to have armed guards sometimes. Lost some trucks to the mobs. Some areas yeah, you just can't go into. After a couple of weeks of driving van, I asked the depot manager about driving bigger rigs. Heard there was a shortage of long-haul drivers. They were all eager at first. Sent me up for training. Yeah, well, most of it was the usual CDO kind of paperwork and tests. But there was the agency training, too. The uh, FEMA? Them and some state and regional outfits. Yeah, it was kind of fuzzy. I did notice that the agency training room had a big photo of Senator Culp at the head of the room. Lots of briefings on the various executive orders and Grand Vision stuff. I made the mistake of making chit-chat with the instructor about how there was no American flags in the room. They like to say they're the real America, but they had no flags. As soon as he gave me that look, I knew it was a mistake. You didn't get arrested or something, did you? Nah, but shortly after that, something was found wrong with my paperwork. I was back to driving vans. I kept pestering my supervisor for another chance. I think he just wanted to get rid of me for bugging him all the time. Either way, I was sent up for training again. This time, I kept my head down and my mouth shut. Got approved, drove rigs from depots west of Philly up toward New York City. Never got that close to the city, though. Do they have lots of supplies in the FEMA depots? I wouldn't say a huge amount, but I saw quite a bit. Still, the way we're trucking it out of there, it ain't going to last more than six months, that's my guess. Maybe they have other depots, too. And they just switch over to those. I couldn't ask too many questions. Just keep my eyes open. You obviously got farther north than New York City. Yeah, I got shifted to another route. Sounded like the mass cantons is running low, like pretty much all the other cantons. But the feds needed to keep the cantons around you guys looking happy. Again, more PR than worried about the people. I figured it was a great opportunity to check out the roads in Connecticut and Mass. But I screwed up again at the morning rally in Danbury. I didn't think it was that obvious, but apparently I was. 
Obvious doing what? Not cheering, but enough enthusiasm, I guess. You see, every morning, they'd get all the drivers together for the briefing and a pep rally. They'd read off our orders for the day, list the checkpoints and stops. The team leader would read off some bad news reports about the coalition or about how bad you guys were up here in New Hampshire. I remember this one report struck me odd. The team leader was saying how awful you guys were here in New Hampshire because you hurt animals. The way he said it, it was just like them old propaganda stories about how German soldiers would bayonet babies or Soviets would bayonet babies or Viet Cong or ISIS. It's an old saw that one's enemies were always known to be evil and worth killing because they killed babies. I half expected to hear how the coalition killed babies, or you guys were up here bayonetting babies. When he said you was hurting animals, I remember thinking that maybe babies weren't all that big a deal to the feds, but animals? <laughs> Those must be sacred. Well, uh, at least they weren't lying, Martin said. Well, no bayonetting babies, but I'll confess that I have shot a few animals to feed my household. Hey, criminal! <laughs> Malcolm laughed. Martin laughed, too, until Walter and Judy shushed him. So, how did you screw up? Martin whispered. Well, normally, I made sure I found a seat in the back of the rallies, because I was worried that I wouldn't look enthused enough. Enthused over the team leader's news? Nah, the chance. To close out the meetings, we do this chanting. The team leader would shout, What do we do? And we're all supposed to shout, Help the people. Then he'd shout, How do we do it? And we'd all have to say, Provision, protection, pride, and peace. And it all had arm gestures, too. When we'd shout, Provision, we were supposed to hold our left fist in the air. With protection, we'd put our right fist up in the air. At Pride, we hold both arms up in the air, like for a touchdown, except with fists. Then at Peace, we are supposed to put our fists together over our heads. Really? That sounds bizarre. Isn't fists together a slavery symbol? Yeah, I told you it was strange. Room full of maybe twenty drivers all chanting three times. Had to chant it three times, don't you know? The last one, as loud as we could. Provision, protection, pride, and peace. That morning in Danbury, though, I was running late. The only open seats were up front. I thought I was acting enthused enough, but apparently I wasn't. The guys beside me looked at me funny. The team leader did, too. I noticed, on the drive out of Danbury, there wasn't the usual amount of radio banter among the drivers. The drivers usually talked about how easy women were in the cantons, how they planned to score using a case at canned tuna, stuff like that. But, out of Danbury, there was almost nothing on the radio. At the break outside of Stairbridge, I noticed that none of the other drivers came over to chat like they usually did. I knew something was up. After Stirbridge, I continued searching the dial to see if there was talking on some other channels. All I got was at the Matuan checkpoint. I couldn't get anything else. When we all pulled off at 93 at the Matuan checkpoint, I made sure that when I stopped, I left some space between me and the truck ahead. He pulled over to the right a bit, so I stopped a bit to the left, 
We sat there a long time. Too long. I saw two guys walking back along the line. From the shadows, I could tell there were more guys coming down the other side, too. I just knew they were coming for me. So I floored it and pulled around left. Of course, a fully loaded rig ain't no jackrabbit off the line. Still, I sent the two guys on the left diving over the embankment. Someone was shooting. I busted down a wooden fence at the checkpoint and turned north onto some street. I knew the border was less than a mile away, but it was still too much of a main street. They'd radio ahead. That roadblock would probably have concrete barriers and more guards. I pulled onto some side street, then left again to go north. There was a smaller roadblock on that little back street, maybe a half dozen guys. One of them started shooting. Hit the windshield. They had cars across the road, but the yards on the right side were pretty wide. I off-roaded it. <laughs> Ran over a big bush. That rig must have looked like a drunken pig across the grass and snow. Still, I got around a checkpoint and back on the road. They were still shooting. I counted two holes in the side, nine holes in the back of the trailer. Merton realized his mouth was hanging open. I had no idea where I was going, other than that we heard about your town at Cheshire being one of the leaders in the fight to stay free. So I had only a half a plan to get up to Cheshire and give you guys the food I had. But along the way, I saw this bunch of really sad-looking people. I stopped and handed out some food in the back. Ah, oh, they were so happy. Well, no doubt, said Martin. But you were doing that alone? Oh, yeah. I learned that was a mistake, continued Malcolm. At the next group I saw, I stopped to give them some food, but a bunch of them jumped me. Somehow I made it to the cab and pulled out the guy before he got it in gear. I drove off with them chasing me. Trouble was, there was still one of them in the trailer. He was tossing out boxes as I drove. I'd take hard turns to try and keep him off his feet, but after a while I, I knew I had to get rid of him. I pulled over on a long, empty stretch. No houses. They had to really punch that guy out. He was a fighter. I knocked him down and threw him out of the trailer. He had emptied over half of it by throwing out boxes. A couple of signs directed me toward Cheshire, but I still had no idea. Coming up that big hill out there, Big Rig ran out of fuel. Walter and his neighbors were good people. They took me in. We offloaded what was left in the trailer into Walter's barn. That's the longer backstory to Walter's stash of dinty moor. Hey, Malcolm, said Walter. I think this guy's talking about you. Hey, really? Investigators report that a rogue driver who tried to break through the security screen was apprehended and is undergoing treatment. What? That can't be me. I'm right here. Nevertheless, said Walter, I think it's supposed to be you. He said it was a FEMA truck driver that broke away from a convoy at the Methuen checkpoint and ran for the New Hampshire border. Ah, how many of those could there be? Reported that they found several assault weapons in the cab of the truck and a Bible. What? I ain't got no guns. None ever even owned a Bible. A verse was highlighted in the book of Revelation that read... 
Oh, you who believe, I shall guide you in a commerce that shall save you from torment. That's not a verse in the Bible, Martin objected. Everyone shushed him. The guns in the Bible prove that the rogue driver was mentally ill and planned to sell the people's supplies to those criminals. He is reportedly undergoing treatment in a hospital in Boston. Governor Baylock has ordered increased security at all checkpoints over the Connecticut River to prevent any other demented victims of coalition brainwashing, causing more mayhem to the peaceful cantons. Ah, blast it, Malcolm grumbled. That was almost a week ago. There was no news. Nothing. I figured maybe my making a break for it didn't change anything. Uh, but now I may have messed things up for Longbow. What's Longbow? Judy asked. Ah, never mind, said Malcolm. It was something other guys was working on. Now they're closing the bridges? That totally screws things up. But what could I do? They were coming for me. Well, not to sound too unsympathetic, but maybe you should have let them capture you, Martin said. Don't you think I taught it that? countered Malcolm. I had papers on me that they could check. They'd find out that they were fakes and start figuring out that there was more than just me behind it. Maybe it's better that they think you were just a lone crazy person, offered Judy. I doubt they really think that, said Malcolm. That's probably just for home consumption, said Walter. It's bad press for them to have a guy get through all their barricades and checkpoints. Makes them look bad especially after that ferry boat got past him. The bosses need to say that they stopped him. Then what about the guns and the Bible stuff? Why make that up? Judy asked. Well, that's the interesting part, Martin said. If they had any proof that Malcolm was part of some larger plot, you can be sure that they'd be trumpeting that from the rooftops. No, I think the lie about the guns and Bible is because they think he was a lone rogue. But they couldn't just let him be a rational man. That might mean that he had good reasons for breaking their lines. They had to discredit him as a whack job. What better way than saying that he had guns? Those are automatically evil. And a Bible? They've been afraid of the Bible for decades. You heard him say that they was tightening security, countered Malcolm. They must suspect. Or they just felt they had to do something, said Walter. There's a visible reaction for, you know, people to see him taking some action. I really thought I was chanting just like the others, Malcolm muttered. Chanting? Eh, that doesn't make any sense, said Judy. It's a long story, Judy. Listen, Malcolm, I don't know how much this might help, said Martin. But that guy said that they were beefing up security at river crossings. Yeah, well, how does that help? It's got me to thinking. Maybe, reading between the lines, it means they don't have enough manpower to really seal everything up tight. If they're short on manpower, they would concentrate on where they had a few key points, like river crossings. The Connecticut and the Hudson form two big barriers to road traffic. There's maybe a dozen bridges over each. Most of them are in cities like Hartford and Springfield. That's a lot fewer spots to have to man. Do you uh, have a road atlas, Walter? Martin asked. Walter slid a big road atlas from a high shelf. Yeah, what are you thinking? 
I was remembering something somebody told me about an abandoned bridge across the Connecticut. I thought maybe, if it wasn't on the maps, they might not be guarding that one. Martin flipped the pages to Massachusetts. He ran his finger along the river, from Brattleboro down to Greenfield. I'm not real sure this Route 10 bridge is her bridge or not. I'll have to ask. And, added Walter, if I'm right that their beefing up security is mostly for show and public consumption, they'd concentrate on the urban areas where people could see them. A remote bridge, even if they knew about it, might have too little reward to it. Well, if you had a bridge that wasn't on the maps, then maybe Longbow could still work. Find out what you can and let me know. I'll need to radio back to the group before they dismantle the whole operation. Judy sat next to Jen on the buckboard's bench. Martin sat in the back with Tin Man and the generator. It was nearly midnight, but a moon above the thin overcast imparted a soft blue glow to the snowy landscape. Peaches and Constance plodded along sleepily. It was easy for them to see the buckboard's previous dark ruts in the snowy road. Martin was tired from the long day. He planned to ask Susan more about the bridge she mentioned from her childhood. She talked as if it was a sound bridge, closed for political reasons. If it wasn't showing up on maps, maybe Governor Baylock's men wouldn't be guarding it. She would have to show him where it was on a map. The buckboard slowly rolled past the white barn, milking parlor, and silo of Coliff's Dairy. Surrounded by the snow, they seemed like some fairy tale ice castle in the dim moonlight. A faint yellow glow on the trees behind the cow pond caught Martin's sleepy attention. Where is that light coming from? Martin wondered. It was far too late for anyone to be up doing chores. The glow was getting brighter. A kerosene lamp wouldn't get brighter. Uh, Jen, hold up a second, Martin called out. He stood in the buckboard. Something doesn't look right. See that glow on the trees? It must be coming from behind the barn. Come with me, Judy. I want to check it out. Jen, could you keep the buckboard here? It might be nothing, and then we can be on our way. Jen nodded. What is it? Judy asked. Why are you walking so fast? It's slippery here. As they rounded the corner of the barn, Martin could see the source of the glow. A bright crackling fire blazed at the base of the barn wall. Run up to the house, Martin shouted. Get everyone up. Tell them the barn's on fire. Martin ran back to the buckboard. Jen was trying to get her horses under control. Something spooked him. I think something ran up the road there, but I couldn't see. Martin grabbed his two empty chip buckets. Jen, go to the town farm. Gather up as many people as this thing will carry. And bring back all the buckets they can find. But be fast. The dairy's barn is on fire. Jen turned the buckboard carefully. The horses trotted off into the dark. Martin ran back behind the barn. Several sleepy people emerged from the house, still trying to pull on their coats or pants. Each, in turn, stopped to gasp at the sight of the barn on fire, but then ran to get a closer look. Grab buckets, Martin shouted. Buckets! We need buckets! He ran to the cow pond. The ice wasn't thick. It seldom was in December. He was able to stomp a hole in the ice with his boot. He kicked aside slabs of ice and plunged in his first bucket. He handed it to a man nearby. 
The man ran up to the fire and threw the water on the flames. It made no difference. Martin handed his second bucket of water to a woman. She ran up to the barn. Her bucket of water had no effect on the flames. Don't just stand there. Bring the buckets back, Martin shouted. More people came to the pond with their buckets. Form a line, Martin shouted. Don't everyone run up to the fire. Hand the buckets up. It'll be faster. Martin handed his bucket to the man near him, who handed it to the woman near him, and so on. Martin filled other buckets as people brought them. Jen pulled up close to the pond. The horses and the buckboard slid to a stop. People jumped off the wagon. They looked around, unsure what to do. The flames were spreading up the side of the barn. "'Someone get the cows out!' shouted Red Colliff. "'Open the end doors!' A woman ran to the doors and pulled for all she was worth against the heavy wooden doors. Red and the other man ran into the dark barn. Frightened mooing could be heard over the crackle of the flames and the shouts of the people. "'Paul!' Martin shouted. "'Get someone up on that shed roof. There's a ladder over there. We need to be pouring water higher.' Paul nodded and ran to the ladder. "'How can I help?' asked Trevor. "'Let me fill buckets. Something!' He grabbed the bucket from Martin and plunged it into the icy water. Martin handed the bucket to the woman at the end of the line. "'Form two lines. We have enough people now. Get the empty buckets back to the pond.' The line of people led from the pond to a man at the foot of the ladder. He handed buckets up to a woman halfway up the ladder. She handed the buckets up to another woman at the edge of the roof. She handed hers to Paul, who threw the water along the barn wall above the fire. Paul then threw the empty buckets out into the yard, where a young man caught it and sent it back to the return line. I, I thought you were chained up, Martin said. I thought so too, said Trevor, but Paul said I could come and help. Careful, Martin shouted to the line. Don't slosh it all out. Paul threw a bucket of water too hard. He lost his balance, slipped and slid down the shed roof on his back. He fell into loose hay but not enough hay to adequately cushion his fall. The woman who was handing the buckets took his place. Everyone in line moved up one spot. Paul got up slowly, holding his ribs. I think we're getting ahead of it. Keep the water coming. He joined the bucket return line. The flames were no longer growing up the side of the barn, but getting shorter. The lines of people shouted encouragement to each other. As cold and wet as they were, standing in the dark and snowy cow-yard, victory is a tonic. Soon the lady on the roof could come down. People poured buckets directly on the wall. Even when the fire was out, people poured buckets onto the blackened and steaming boards. Barbara Colliff brought out two oil lamps from the house. Their light replaced the glow from the fire. People in the line slowed their pace. Some took buckets of water up to the hayloft to make sure that Sparks didn't find a home up in the hay. Red inspected the side of the barn with one lamp. Yeah, pretty charred, but didn't burn through, he announced. Keep pouring more water over here. Don't want any embers left. Martin patted Trevor on the back to signal that he could come out of the pond. Uh, we got it licked, he said. Uh, come on out and dry off before you freeze. A young man brought towels from the house. Jen hauled a load of triumphant town farm residents back to their warm fires and dry beds. The people from the dairy coaxed the cows back into the barn. The rest slowly filed back into the house. How did that start? 
Red held his lantern high while he inspected the charred wall. Barns don't just burst into flames. In the snow. Looks like the char from a lot of sticks along here, said Martin. Sticks? Yeah, we don't keep trash like that up against my barn. Attracts ants. I keep a tidy farm. Always have. Then I'd say it was kindling, announced Paul. Bring the lamp over here. He was stooped down, poking in the slushy snow. He pulled a triangle of paper out of the slush. One edge was charred. My guess is that they used gas or kerosene and tossed this burning paper on to light it. Since it landed in the snow, it didn't all burn. But who'd want to burn down a dairy? Everyone in town benefits from it, said Red. Well, I don't know who started it, said Trevor, but I think I was supposed to take the fall for it. What? I ain't just no rantin' paranoid either, said Trevor. I was locked up like usual. It lights out, right? Right, Paul nodded. I put the lock on the chains myself. Uh-huh. Well, then when that lady came a-hollerin' about the fire, I went to the window to see, except my chain don't reach the window. That's when I found out my chain wasn't locked no more. I figured you unlocked it so as could help. I didn't unlock you. Yeah, I know that now. That's why I figured someone else did that while I was sleeping. Then someone could say, Hey, look, the crook wasn't locked down. It's probably him, they'd say. But it wasn't me. I was sleeping in my bed just like everybody else. Martin looked around by the lamplight but the area was thoroughly trampled by all of the bucket volunteers. There wasn't a chance of seeing if footprints led away from the fire scene. They walked all around the barnyard, but saw no clues. Think it was some of them guys that stole Clyde's corn? Paul asked. Martin shrugged. Yes, certainly don't see any big tire truck prints in the snow. Just a million footprints. No way of knowing whose is whose. Well, I'm going to put a guard on the barn from now on, said Red. We had one in the house, but he was facing the road. I always figured that'd be the direction of trouble. He didn't see the fire. Sure glad you guys happened along when you did. If that had gone up into the hayloft, ah, the whole shebang had gone up. Well, we ain't going to see anything else here in the dark, announced Red. You folks go on back to bed. We'll check things out in the morning. Jen had returned to bring Paul and Trevor back to the farm. Martin and Red scouted out a good vantage point in the barn for a guard while waiting for Jen to return with the buckboard. I'm sure looking forward to sitting by the fire when we get home. Judy climbed into the buckboard. I was tired before this whole fire thing. Me too. Did you see anything when we first got there? Martin asked Jen. No, it was too dark. I think Peaches must have seen something, though. She got all jumpy. It took a bit to calm her down. Yeah, can't say I blame her, said Martin. His head swirled with who might be behind the arson attempt. Malcolm's adventures, longbow, and hidden bridges, none of it made any sense. Adrenaline might help fight midnight fires, but it wasn't so good for thinking. Oh, so now there might be some sabotage going on. Trouble from the outside sneaking in, or trouble from within? I hope you've visited Todd Sepulveda's Ready Your Future site and taken advantage of his weekly preparedness newsletter.
It's nice to have someone gather up the week's best preparedness articles and deliver them right to your inbox. Check it out. That's readyyourfuture, all one word, dot com. Look for the button labeled Top Preparedness Articles. If you're enjoying the Siege of New Hampshire story, share a link to the podcast with a friend. Several listeners have commented that the Siege story has been a nice way to introduce the topic of preparedness with friends or family without the turnoff of zombies, bad language, graphic gore, or perpetual gun battles. Talking about the siege stories can be a gentler way to get a friend or family member to start thinking about preparedness. Share the link. Give it a try.